Episode 1777 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing okay, but how are you doing? Because teams have not complied with your wishes. (laughs) (laughs) You requested a pre-Thanksgiving lull, and instead we've seen the opposite. Well, I'm fine because like any good workplace, Fangraphs runs because it does not depend entirely on my presence. Mm-hmm. John has, has been editing in my stead. The staff is writing their usual good analysis. So it's been okay, but it is sort of comical that because of the the looming CBA deadline, we have this sort of artificial crunch before Thanksgiving. Although, you know, it's not as if we don't have Thanksgiving-related transaction activity uh, or haven't had it in prior years. But Yes, often it's Jerry DePoto's doing. Right. And now it's kind of a, a collective effort. Right. So uh, it's been fine. You know, it gives us something to talk about. My parents' dogs are in their uh, crates so as not Uh to hopefully bark excessively during our podcast. I'm I'm Mm -hmm. ready to go. Here we are. Excellent. My dog is on my lap, but she is a seasoned podcaster. So she is just about always there. And she knows when she's on the lap under the blanket, it's podcasting time. She's got to be quiet for a while. And usually she's pretty good about that. So yeah, it's tough to say whether there's more happening on the Hot Stove League or in Stove League, but (laughs) we will talk about both today. So we can start with the former and the headline news is the Wander Franco extension. Yeah. The extension that launched a thousand jokes and witty word plays about how Wander is in fact not wandering anywhere and yes. in fact he is staying in Florida, or at least he is as long as the Rays themselves are in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> I guess there's still a question about that. So this is an eleven year guarantee for 182 million right but there is a 12th year club option for another 25 million that could come into play here and then there are various escalators that could kick in if he gets some top five mvp finishes after a certain point so it can max out at 223 million over 12 years and that's a really long time And yet, because he is so young, he will not be an old person by the time his deal is done. Like, Even if the club option is exercised and he's with the Rays or whichever team inherits this contract 12 years later, he'll be like, what, a little older than Freddie Freeman is now, I guess? (laughs) So he could very well sign another multi-year deal after this. In fact, it's likely that he will. So this is not his complete career early. And I would say that either he will be in a position to make much more money by that point, or he will probably be happy that he signed this extension, right? Kind of either or. Like if things don't work out for some reason, then maybe this will be the big signing for him. But if so, then it's not bad. So this has sort of started the usual conversation about how to decide whether a player left some amount of money on the table. And it's unusual, I guess, for that to be a a raise-centric conversation, although 
they have certainly signed players to extensions before and we can discuss some of those but this is a record deal for the Rays easily and it's also a record deal easily for any player with the scant service time that Wander Franco has so obviously he is a much wealthier person now and it is nice for Rays fans that they can count on seeing Wander Franco for a while maybe not for 12 years but for a while yeah I think that I think a couple things I talked about the potential for this extension a little bit with your august colleague Michael Bauman Mm -hmm. um, on your other podcast because you just have all these podcasts Ben (laughs) and I think at the time I had sort of said Wander don't don't do it I think my thinking on that has evolved a little bit I do think it's worth noting that players of his caliber do tend to do pretty well for themselves in arbitration, right? So yeah. it is not as if the the options that were available to him were, you know, make the league minimum for the next five years or or sign this extension, right? Like we've seen mm-hmm. players like Mookie Betts make, you know, more than $20 million in an RP year. So that that sort of possibility existed. I do think that it's useful to think about this extension within the context of other big pre-arbitration extensions that that we have seen. And I think the mm-hmm. one that everyone really cringes at and feels yucky about is Ozzy Albies, right? Where it was clear mm-hmm. that it seemed like he maybe got bad advice, right? Like his agent did not do right by him given where his talent lies, even with some of the limitations in his profile, like he should have made more than that. And then there's Ronald Acuna Jr., who mm-hmm. I think we all kind of thought, well, you can do better than this and maybe you should have been encouraged to hold out to do better than this, but this is not like an insultingly bad deal. I don't want to like retcon it as as awesome given the injury that he suffered this year, yeah. right? But like that is the that is the scenario that you are trying to mitigate when you sign deals like this, right? Is that you can have just a, a season ending injury. You can have a career-altering injury, and it doesn't seem likely that that's going to be quite the severity of this for Ronald Acuna Jr., but like that is that would have been a factor in his in whatever contracts he signed after that. So that's mm-hmm. the situation that you're trying to manage for. I think that like when you have the possibility of making $223 million, like you are you are accruing generational wealth in a moment yep. like that. You know, this is not just life-altering for Wanda Franco, but for his future children should he have them and potentially their children right you know this is this is generational money and i think that while if you look at the projections you know sometimes when i go on vacation for a day i just get to interact with fangrass as a reader which is a thing i don't (laughs) normally get to do and i opened dan's piece on this and looked at his zips projections and it's like I think he he put it best on Twitter. This is almost like fan service. <laughs> like the <laughs> projections for for Franco are absurd because he is so incredibly talented. Like there's a reason he is the only prospect we have ever aided at Fangraphs, right? Mm-hmm. And so I I think that it is perfectly reasonable to look at this deal and think that he left money on the table, but I don't think that it is taking advantage of him, right? I don't think that that is the sort of sheen that this deal has. And because he is so young, like this is not the last contract he will sign. Yep. And if it is, you know, the last meaningful payday he gets, well, then he properly managed his risk of something going awry later in his career, right? Like I think that we all want players to be paid commensurate with the value that they bring to their teams and to the sport more broadly. And 
Wander Franco has the potential to be a generational talent and a guy who is a fixture of the sport for a long, long time. But I don't look at this and feel my immediate reaction is not one of like, oh, no, Wander, why'd you sign that? Like, right. I'm like, oh, wow, Wander, you're probably going to make $200 million, man. That's <laughs> pretty rad. And I agree with you. Like the first thought I had when I saw this sort of come across the transom was, how cool for Rays fans, right? Mm -hmm. I know that the possibility exists that they are going to see this team less often in person because of weird split time with Montreal. And, you know, I don't I don't want to let ownership sort of off the hook for that scheme, which just seems kind of weird to me. But like you can if you're a Rays fan today, you can go buy a jersey and do it confidently. And that's really cool because they mm -hmm. often don't have that. And what better a guy to be able to do that for than such a talented young player who, like you said, might not be with their club for 12 years, but is going to be with their team for a long, long time. So I, I'm i excited for Rays fans. I think this is great for Wander. And I do think that, you know, we should continue to interrogate the the labor environment that we're operating in. But I don't think that if you're on if you're on the hunt for a deal that really underscores the biggest problems in the sport, I don't think that this is it. So, yeah. Right. All of these deals take place in this context, in this environment where young players are underpaid relative to their production. So if you're just going to go based on war per year or something, then yeah, he'll probably continue to be underpaid. But relative to the standards of this type of extension, it seems reasonable. And really, as soon as he came up last year and he was what he was expected to be almost immediately, yeah. <laughs> there was a, a slight adjustment period and then he was just on base every day for the rest yep. of the season. But as soon as he came up, there is an undercurrent of conversation of people kind of joking about, oh, enjoy him while you can. You know, the Rays will trade him soon. And now that conversation gets pushed back a bit. They do have a history of trading players whom they have signed to extensions. So Evan yeah. Longoria, Blake Snell, Chris Archer. So yes. there's every chance that he will not play out this entire deal with the Rays and that he will be very attractive to other teams on the trade market during the latter stages of this deal. Because yeah. if he does play as he is projected to play, then he will still be paid less than he would make on the open market at that point. And so he will certainly be movable and it is possible that the Rays will do that regardless of where they are actually playing at that point right. but this definitely pushes the conversation back years and that's good I think that they can count on him that there's some stability there because they have been a team that's been extremely successful but often hasn't had a super duper star they've been great at assembling depth and not having replacement level players at any position or sub replacement level players they mix and match and they use different players to the best of their abilities, but they haven't often had the MVP candidate, and that's what Wander Franco could be, really, as soon as next season, because yeah. he just looks fantastic. And it's hard to come up with a non-injury-related scenario where he isn't great. Like, his skills just seem so projectable, so dependable. He performed so consistently as the youngest player, one of the youngest players at every level of the minors as he was coming up, and he did it in a way that gave you utmost confidence in his ability to translate that to the major league level, and then he did right away at an early age. And so it's hard for me even to construct a scenario where he just underperforms, and it's not because he hurt himself. It's just right. because he He's not as good as we thought or the league figures him out. I just 
can't really imagine that happening. There's no such thing as a can't-miss prospect or a can't-miss player, but he's as close as it comes, really. So the Rays obviously didn't do this out of the kindness of their hearts, and they did it because they think they're going to come out ahead in the long term, and there's a decent chance that that will be the case. But even so, for Franco, it's it's a strange discussion to have because the numbers are so big relative to most of our salaries in all of these cases like even the Albies extension which as you said is often cited as the recent example of agent malpractice along with I guess the first Evan Longoria extension even that is like well we're not going to make that much money in our entire lives unless our Patreon supporters are really really generous (laughs) and so for a young (laughs) guy Wander Franco (laughs) becomes a Patreon supporter (laughs) exactly maybe he really loves the podcast and he will now up his contribution but unless like uh, something unforeseen happens like most of us are looking at that amount of money and saying oh I would love to make that in my lifetime not just when I am 20 and and for the next decade or so of my life but of course these players are generating a lot of revenue and there's a lot of interest in what they do and so they deserve their fair share and Dan ran down the projections as you said and he also compared it in an objective rigorous type of way to some of those other touch stone extensions he also mentioned that the only player who is projected by zips to accumulate more war over the rest of his career is Juan Soto so that's pretty impressive and relative to what zips would have projected I mean I think the thing that can kind of get lost because Franco was so highly touted and was so productive right away is that he is so far away from getting a payday otherwise like Because the Rays didn't call him up earlier, he didn't get a full year of service time. And so he was going to be making league minimum or close to it for not just this season, but the two seasons after that. And then would have three ARB years where he would make more, but not nearly as much as he would on the open market. And then finally, he would hit free agency like six years from now. So that's a long time to wait. And yeah, you know, he'd be making major league minimum. It's not nothing. But who knows? Knows what could go wrong during that period, even though he is about as dependable a player as you could imagine. Like, he's not Scott Kingery, he's not John Singleton. Those are the examples of players who were signed to team friendly extensions that ended up not being so team friendly because, uh, at least to this point, they haven't panned out as expected. But he's not that. But even if you look at some of the other marquee players who've signed huge deals, I mean, Tatis. There's the uncertainty surrounding his shoulder. Maybe it won't be an issue. Hopefully it won't, but maybe it will. There's Acuna and his knee, as you mentioned. There's Cody Bellinger, right? And everything that's happened to him. And Christian Yelich, who was at a different point in his career when he signed his extension with the Brewers. But look what's happened to him thus far (laughs) since that deal was signed. So... You never know for sure, and now (laughs) Franco knows for sure about how much money he will be making at the very least. Yeah, and I I think that like it is important for us to remember sort of the the structural incentives that point players toward deals like this, and and by like this I mean pre arb extensions, not deals quite of the same um, magnitude that that Franco just signed, right? Like it is not, it should not be lost on anyone that an understanding that you're going to make the league minimum and then you are subject to the vagaries of the arbitration system such as it currently stands, which may well change in the next collective bargaining agreement, although I don't expect that it's going to move all that much. You know, there are 
powerful incentives for you to lock in a guarantee now in a way that if you know players were able to reach free agency earlier or if they had the sense that you know the arbitration system was going to compensate them closer to their market value you know i talked about how bets has has been able to do was able to do well within arb um, before he signed his massive extension with the dodgers but like he set a record at 27 million so you know i think that it's important for us to keep in mind that these guys are trying to mitigate a risk that is artificially created by the system in which they operate. And if they were just free agents, their understanding of their ability to make money at the point in their career when they're the most productive would be really different. And so I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want us to lose sight of that because I think it's an important structural force to keep in mind. And all of that said, this is within the range of the kind of deal that you maybe expect to be able to sign. You know, it's a tricky thing because, like, I think there's a good argument to be made that even, like, Mike Trout's deal doesn't pay him enough or didn't when he mm-hmm. signed, right? Like, he is he is not actually, from a dollars per war perspective, being compensated commensurate with the value he brings because his ability to do that would break Angel's payroll within the system they operate in right. forever. Unless he now, has a calf injury for five months. But right. But and yes. so, right. So there's that part of it too. But <laughs> so I don't want to lose sight of the system. And I think that it is useful to, while keeping an eye on that, conduct your analysis within the system in which these guys are actually operating. And within that system, like this strikes me as, this strikes yeah. me as okay. Yeah, we won't just be on the next CBA by the time this deal runs through. Like, it'll be the CBA after that. So who even knows? Like, yeah, maybe if he had waited for the CBA to be signed, perhaps the terms could have been more favorable in some way. But maybe not. Maybe the opposite. It's really hard to tell. And now he has some certainty. And Dan's projections say that... If he had just gone year to year, Zips estimates that he might have made $297 million over the next 12 years instead of the $223 million that he can max out at now. But there's a lot of variance around that number sure. and maybe more downside than upside. Like if you were going to nitpick Franco, which is really hard to do, I guess you could say that it's maybe harder to imagine him just having a huge season than some of the other young superstars. Like Dan said, the upside, his 90th percentile projection is like 360 million over that period. And maybe he doesn't have trout upside. Maybe he doesn't have Tatis upside. He might. It wouldn't shock me if he did, but I guess it's a little harder to imagine him as the 40 homer guy. Like he's a great on base guy. He can hit for average. He doesn't strike out. But because he's maybe not an elite defender, at least at shortstop, and doesn't seem to have like top of the scale power, although he's so young and he seems very strong and well built, but he's not a, a tall or, or huge guy. So it wouldn't shock me if he had some power breakout, but it's a little harder to see that coming, I guess. So, sure. you know, for him to put up a, a eight or nine win season, I mean, it, it seems like he has the, the highest floor of, of any one that he'll just be churning out for five six win seasons and who knows like he could definitely better that but as dan notes like the 10th percentile result everything goes wrong he gets hurt whatever that's he makes less than 20 million over that span 
And in 35% of the Zips simulations, he falls short of $182 million in earnings that's guaranteed to him now. And by comparison, if you compare to the time when they signed their deal, Acuna falls short of that guaranteed deal that he got only 17% of the time. Albies only 9% of the time. Longoria, with his first extension, 11% of the time. So with those, it was like really hard to imagine them doing badly enough that they would not make right. more money. With Franco, it's still like he probably, it seems like, if, if things are even the median outcome, he could and should do better. But it's a lot easier to construct an outcome where he doesn't do better. So I think that this is uh, much more in line with the market and with his talents. And if you didn't grow up rich and you're 20 years old and someone yeah. offers you $200 million, well, that's tough to say no to. So I totally understand it. And really, I mean, if the, the worst outcome is that he costs himself some amount of money that probably will not make an appreciable difference to the quality of life of himself or his family like if he invests this money at all wisely you know the the extra 50 million on top of the first 200 million shouldn't make that huge a difference you know you should get what you're entitled to but once you get that first 200 million you're pretty much set i think so yeah yeah it works out yeah i think Oh, the heater just turned on. Ben. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh you have heaters now. I'm not. Oh, yeah. Cause, you're cause you're not actually, in Arizona anymore. It's actually chilly here. I'm cold. <laughs> I had to put socks on. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, hopefully. Sorry, Dylan. I mean, we should leave this all in. That's fine. <laughs> but uh, hopefully it's not loud in a way that's obvious. And if it is, at least it's a consistent tone. So mm -hmm. easy to pull from the track. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that we, we kind of tend to think of these things as like once you have cleared the sort of bar of respectability on the contract, it does start to feel hard to haggle over 10 million here or 20 million there because it's like you're making in all likelihood like 220 million dollars or you're mm -hmm. being you know you're hitting for agency a year earlier and you are presumably going to sign something that is multi-year and also accrues you a reasonable amount of money so i don't know i i want to not be seduced by a 200 million dollar figure and just say well everything is gravy because like the difference is meaningful right like Betts's deal was for more than this and mm -hmm. you know he was n not an 80 future value prospect so it isn't as if it's immaterial but i don't think that it's insulting like we're not going to look at this like albies and go like oh gosh dude like how did yeah. how did that happen mm -hmm. it's not i don't think it's that kind of deal but i do find I, I think it's probably worth noting at least to me i do find the timing of the extension to be interesting i don't know if this allows us to like read into the tea leaves what the Rays expect the next CBA to look like, mm -hmm. I imagine that the primary motivation for them was that Wander Franco is a franchise player and they want to secure his services for a long, long time. But it is interesting that this deal was completed before we had a really clear picture of what the new labor environment is going to look like. Uh, although, again, I don't imagine it's going to be altered all that drastically, unfortunately, from the player's perspective. So that part of it is is a little curious and not just because it meant that we had to make sure that we had coverage of a massive deal right before the holiday. <laughs> 
Yeah, I am used to extensions like this being signed like right before opening day yeah. right in spring training. I'm sure that there are precedents for deals being signed at this point in the offseason too, but it does seem like more than usual. So congrats to Franco for cashing in and yeah. securing his future and not having to worry about his contract for more than a decade now. There's no no trade clause, by the way, but if he is traded at some point, he does get a, a bonus that kicks in. So yes. Sweeten the deal a little bit. Yep. Soften the pain of parting. So that is Franco. And also, the starting pitcher market is moving. Yeah. Lots of activity here. So since we last spoke, the Giants brought back a couple of their guys, Anthony DiScofani and Alex Wood. And there have been conversations with others, but there is also a big Cardinals deal. The Cardinals signed Stephen Matz for four years and $44 million, which was way over the MLB trade rumors estimate of yeah. $27 million. So I guess we should have drafted the over on Stephen Matz. Yeah. Didn't necessarily see that coming. Steve Cohen is upset. He is tweeting. The Mets have missed out again, <laughs> but... The Cardinals got a guy who is not the sexiest acquisition, I suppose, but he's been dependable aside yeah. from the pandemic season. He's been sort of the same guy. I guess you would describe him as solid. Yeah. He'll give you 150 to 160 innings, which is not nothing in this day and age. And at a time when even the pennant winners are running on fumes pitching staff-wise by the end of October. And Matz has been pretty good. He was pretty successful for the Blue Jays in the meat grinder of the AL East. So now he gets to go to the comparatively soft NL Central and pitch in front of the French Cardinals defense so not overpowering not incredible peripherals even for a, a sinker ball guy I guess he doesn't have the hugest ground ball rates but seems like a, a pretty decent fit of player and team and I don't know if the Cardinals are done or whether they will make more upgrades to this rotation but that's a start yeah what is it with me going back to the northwest and the Mets having weird drama <laughs> this is like the second time this has happened in the last six I mean, months when don't the Mets have weird drama, I guess so. that's fair yeah <laughs> I might be selecting on the wrong variable here yeah I, I think that given the the Cardinals own free agent departures like this makes a tremendous amount of sense for them I think that having like stable innings is underrated in terms of its value to the team I think that Matt's is like you said like a dependable good pitcher and he you know seemed to do well with Toronto so that that is a mark in his favor and Steve Cohen should log off <laughs> yeah <laughs> he really should he seems upset about uh, apparently he thought that the negotiations were going differently than they did he is making accusations about the agent who put out his own statement where he says that he's taken the high road. But yeah, I don't see the the good outcome that can come no. from uh, your owner tweeting, I'm not happy this morning. I've never seen such unprofessional behavior exhibited by a player's agent. I guess words and promises don't matter. Steve Cohen, man of his words, just the <laughs> the epitome of integrity in business is uh, appalled at how the agent operated here. And, you know, nothing's done until the deal is signed. So I don't know where things were and why he is upset about this. But clearly the Mets did not land Stephen Matz, and so he probably should not be so upset about it. I don't want to overestimate the degree to which stuff like this matters because I think that if an agent is doing their job 
they're in pursuit of the best possible contract they can secure for their client. And like at the end of the day, that is the most important thing for them. And if it is done with an owner whose Twitter behavior is immature, shall we say, like I don't imagine that they're actually is an agent out there that said, well, I thought we were going to land a good deal with the Mets, but now that I see how Steve Cohen is behaving on Twitter, forget it. I'm going to leave that good deal on the table and take- Don't want him to tweet about me, so I will cost my client money, yeah. That said, like it is itself, whatever may have transpired with Stephen Matz's agent, I don't No, I don't know. I think that, like you said, until a deal is done, it's not done. And like he has an obligation to try to secure the best possible contract he can for Stephen Matz. And that doesn't really take Steve Cohen's ego into account. Like that is immaterial to that particular exchange, right? But it doesn't seem likely to help your negotiations when you're, you know, you look around and you're like, well, I guess I'm going to have my business like spread about Twitter. Mm -hmm. by the actual owner it's like come on man just keep that stuff in house this is like our criticism of him earlier in the summer no one wants to see their boss detailing their performance on twitter like those are conversations that should be conducted internally that's like how adults operate so log off steve this isn't (laughs) helping you come on well, at least Billy Epler knows what he's in for now. <laughs> Enjoy it. Just signed a long-term deal, and this is what you signed up for. <laughs> yeah, I just, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Like, if I had the kind of money Steve Cohen has, you'd never hear from me. You'd never hear from me. I'd be like, I am free of all of this. You will never know my name. My name is de- dead to history now. I'll, I'll keep doing the pod, Ben. Like, I'll Good. do the pod, because, okay. right. you know. I like chatting with you about baseball, but um, I guess we won't need a Patreon if I have Steve Cohen's money. Will I? <laughs> Will we? Yeah, if you're willing to share it with me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that when your front office is replete with process failures and you are trying to assert a new and more professional and cohesive vision for your organization – very few people have ever found success bringing Twitter into the mix in in the pursuit of that goal. So log off, Steve. It's almost the holidays. Go go have a turkey or something. Yes. So it's just amazing. Even when players sign who have nothing to do with the Mets currently, it becomes right. a, a Mets story somehow. <laughs> like, yeah. I understand Noah Syndergaard signs with the Angels. Okay, he was leaving the Mets directly. Stephen Mets, Mats, <laughs> Mets, Mats had already left the Mets, and yet he is still. It's still a Mets story somehow when he signs elsewhere. All right. The only other notable deal to discuss is the White Sox signing Kendall Graveman. Yeah. Adding to their closer collection I guess they have at least three of them for now for now (laughs) so Kendall Graveman this is a a three-year 24 million dollar deal and the White Sox just have like late inning relievers all the way down now it's like even if Michael Kopech is starting in 2022 you have Hendricks you have for now Craig Kimbrell whose option the White Sox picked up then you've got like Beyond Graveman, Aaron Bummer, and Garrett Crochet, and then like even the back end arms had pretty decent stats. Ryan Burr, Jose Ruiz, Reynaldo Lopez, like lots of other teams would be happy to have guys like that in, in leverage roles. And these are the mop up arms for the White Sox. So yeah. you can't really go wrong. As for Graveman himself, I guess we haven't talked a ton about him since the whole trade deadline uproar when the Mariners moved him, but Really, who he was with the Astros after that trade 
probably more reflective of who he is. Like, he doesn't have overwhelming peripherals, really, for a late-inning reliever in the 2020s. And yes, his stuff certainly ticked up when he moved from the rotation to the the bullpen. But, you know, he, he doesn't have the strikeout rates that match up with the league leaders at this point. He went from having a .82 ERA in Seattle this season to a 3.13 ERA in Houston. And that's not bad, but that's probably more reflective of who he is. And that's fine. So, you know, are the White Sox buying into a a one-year or one-year-and-one-month wonder here? Maybe a little bit. There's not a super long track record, but given the stuff he had, like it seems like he should at least be able to sustain the level of success that he had with the Astros, which yeah. is, you know fairly replaceable I guess like he had a 360 FIP with the Astros I mean that's a dime a dozen in bullpens these days in the White Sox bullpen even but I guess this gives them added depth if they do move Kimbrel, which it seemed like they were inclined to do anyway and now with Graveman on board even more so and I guess there aren't like that many places for the White Sox to upgrade like it's a, a really good roster and if they get back the players who they didn't have for the full season last year obviously they were without Luis Robert they were without Eloy Jimenez for long stretches of that season Yasmani Grandal as well if they have better health for for them I mean there is the hole at second base that was created by the Nick Madrigal trade but there aren't that many places where you would say oh the White Sox should just be the biggest spenders here and outbid everyone for top free agent X I suppose there are always some places but if you already have a good team and your path to the division title is fairly clear as it still seems to be in the White Sox case for now the Tigers of course are mounting their thread and maybe the Twins will be a bit more competitive and Cleveland's kind of hanging around I suppose but seems like the White Sox still the class of their division and maybe this is like a well we had to spend money and try to upgrade somewhere so let's go get Kendall Graveman yeah I mean I think that I think that the White Sox could could improve in a couple of spots like I think another it feels strange to say this like you said because they're getting some guys back who they missed long stretches of with injury but I could see them benefiting from from another hitter and like Mm -hmm. you know they uh they could maybe use another starter now that they're seemingly letting Rodon go and yep. so like there are a couple of places but I really like the idea of building the you know entire plane out of the black box as it were when it comes yep. to your bullpen right and that seems to be what they're doing here you know even if they end up moving Kimbrel which I imagine that they will try to now like mm-hmm. truly in earnest that they have Graveman sort of in the fold but yeah I do I will say it would be nice in in the central to have a team that's like, we know we can win, but we'll really press the advantage anyway, right? Like, I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't hate a, a team emerging from there and going like, hey, we shall not Cleveland our way through this. Oh, I just get to say Guardians now. Yeah, God, what a tr- team name. What <laughs> a relief. <laughs> what a treat. Thanks, guys, for not <laughs> persisting in your nonsense. Um, yeah, it would be nice if they didn't, like, Guardians their way through. And that is supremely unfair of me to say because this is a meaningfully different situation <laughs> than yeah. what Cleveland was doing. So I'm going to take it right back. But I think the general sentiment persists, which is that, you know, like, really press your advantage. You know, go get 
go get another starter. I, I too am willing to believe in Michael Kopech in the rotation, but like, go get one more and, you know, go get, go get one more hitter. Do it. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm, I'm nervous for Andrew Vaughn. I worry about mm -hmm. him. I, I think he might need a little AAA time to really get to get right. So go get one more. But yes, I think this is a very, very good baseball team. I think that in Dan's initial Zips projections, he has them favored pretty heavily. Mm -hmm. I think that they have a year to sort out what more they might really need um, to to deal with Detroit as it is ascendant and, and Kansas City if they ever end up being right about contending. So mm -hmm. they have some time to sort that stuff out. But one more. Go yeah. get one more. <laughs> the window is wide open. Yeah. We'll just proof your pen. They won 93 games last year. They yeah. won the division. And I feel like we didn't really see the full power of the White Sox right. because of some of those absences. Oh, yeah. I and, mean, they, they had their full lineup so rarely. Right. And they perhaps kind of coasted a little. They certainly were able to if they wanted to because yeah. they had such a large lead really from the outset. So they didn't play great down the stretch. And yeah, I feel like they could still take a, another little leap here. So I'm looking forward to seeing a, a hopefully healthier White Sox team in 2022. So yeah. that's the big MLB news as we record here on early Wednesday afternoon. And I suppose that means it is time to transition to talking about Stove League. So... This is our second Stove League discussion. We started last week. We will be discussing the fifth through eighth episodes this time. So no spoilers beyond episode eight, but we will assume you have watched up until that point. And again, everyone, if you haven't gotten on board yet, please do start streaming. Check out the links on the show page. We recommend Vicky for the best available subtitles. But boy, a lot has happened in these last four episodes. <laughs> wow. Wow, Ben. <laughs> I I <laughs> so much plot. It's like yes. Riverdale. <laughs> yeah. Just a lot of plot. Good plot, but gosh, lots happening. Oh my Yeah. I don't know if they knew from the beginning that this would be a single season show as it yeah. seems to be now. If so, then it makes sense. Don't save anything for season right. two. Just burn all your storylines and they are just eating through them. And it's great because it, it's focusing on really a, a single off season in the yeah. life cycle of this team. So there's not a ton of time. The action is all compressed and you have this huge ensemble cast, lots of characters. Many more have been introduced or fleshed out in this second batch of episodes that that we're talking about today so you don't have a, a ton of time to get all this action done they're trying to go from worst to first or at least worst to <laughs> second worst that is their goal in this off season and yeah if you want to get your viewers hooked it's almost like a show like homeland or something that just kind of like comes out of the gate and uses its best ideas early and 
then when that ends up running for seven seasons or however long that ended up running, then maybe you run out of gas a little bit at the end and you're trying to make it up as you go along. But if you know that this is more of a self-contained story and you have a single season to just use all your best material, yeah. it's kind of like the OC just like came out of the gate, used all the best stuff, and then there was a little lull, although I still enjoy later seasons of the OC. But yeah. Just saying, they're not leaving anything in reserve here. So when we left the dreams last time, they were in fake California, which is actually Hawaii, competing with a mystery team for this foreign player, Miles. I like that the the foreign players are all just like one name. It's just Miles Herbert. (laughs) It's just, they're all just like Prince or something. And we learn that the mystery team is the Pelicans. And the Pelicans, like seemingly every team in this fictional KBO, have more money than the Dreams. So there is uh, evidently a $1 million maximum that these teams can spend on foreign players. And the Dreams can't quite go there. The Pelicans can. And Miles, he's uh, throwing 96 miles per hour. I think that is roughly what a 155 kilometers per hour is. And in the KBO, 96 is pretty substantial. Yeah. So they are salivating as they are seeing this guy throw harder and harder, but they are unable to afford him. And our GM tries to sweeten the deal. He tries to make some guarantees and assurances about him being able to remain in the rotation and being able to pursue his own training program. And it seems like Miles is, is interested, but yeah. uh, then very quickly he he signs with the Pelicans and the Dreams are forced to go to Plan B and Plan C and Plan D. And I was kind of confused about whether Miles speaks Korean. Thank you. Yes, I was just about to bring this up. <laughs> that one scene, right? When yes. They're in the bar slash restaurant. I was my mind. Yeah. And the interpreter, like at first he is translating everything yes. that Baek Sung Su is saying to Miles. But then he stops. <laughs> yeah. He, he translates very selectively. And it seems like Miles just understands everything that Peck Sung Su was saying anyway. Yep. So I don't know if that was just like, well, we're trying to save a little time here and uh, not have you listen to <laughs> this question in multiple languages. But yes. it was a little jarring because it's like, wait, does he speak Korean? And does Peck Sung Su speak English as he said he did? And if so, why are they not just speaking to each other? But that was weird. Yeah, that was weird. I found it very resting. And then I was like, this is just TV nonsense. Like sometimes, yeah. sometimes you just have TV nonsense and like that's <laughs> what you get. But I, I did find the mid, the mid conversation shift <laughs> to, <laughs> to like each side. This happens in science fiction a lot where like both sides will just speak in their respective language and then everyone understands. But I was like, <laughs> huh. Miles, wow, yeah. you really, you really it's are like very talented. Star Trek Universal Translator is is yes. <laughs> inserted in the middle of the scene somehow. Yeah. But anyway, we're just uh, pointing out these little things as yes. we go. So they don't like their other options here. They're not interested in anyone else they see. But then it turns out that the solution to their problems has been under their noses all, all along. along. The interpreter himself. Robert Gill, or Gil Chang Chu, as he is known in Korea, and Robert Gill is his naturalized American name. Yeah. It turns out that he is a very promising pitcher in his own right. And yeah. 
he has a whole complicated backstory here. Yes. So he was a Korean player and he was playing on Korean amateur national teams. And there is compulsory military service and an expectation that you will serve for some time in South Korea. And you can get an exemption to that if you, say, win a, a gold medal in the Asian Games. And he did not quite do that. He pitched very well, and he pitched for multiple teams over multiple years, but yeah. he did not get the exemption. And so he, instead of serving in the military, becomes naturalized in America, gets around the military service, and he is somewhat criticized for that at the time, I guess, people approved because they realized that he had dreams of pitching in MLB, and he seemed to have the talent to do that, and so the public opinion poll was somewhat supportive of him at that time. But then after, I guess, his rookie season for some unspecified MLB team, he gets hurt, he hurts his elbow, and that kind of kills his career in the short term. Now we find out here that he had another reason for going to America. It was not just that he wanted not to serve and right. wanted to pursue his dreams in MLB, but his wife was sick. She needed a heart transplant, and the waiting list was long in Korea. So they went to the U.S. She is healthy now. She is pregnant. That all worked out, but he kept this quiet because he didn't want his wife to take the blame yeah. for his decisions. So no one knows about this until it comes to light now. And so he has kind of been suffering in silence and, and suffering these uh, barbs and slings and arrows, and people don't know what his real motivation is. And he's still training and trying to pitch and still wants to make MLB, and he is... Uh, pitching every day to confirm that his elbow is okay, which seems like a good way to make it not okay. okay I, don't again, know yeah. that, I don't know if that's the, the best plan to just throw every day to make sure that you can still throw every day, but he still has it. And they go watch him throw, and he clearly is outperforming all of their other options. Yeah. And they send some video to the scout team. They like what they see. So they know that they're in for a public relations backlash here. But he is not actually suspended. It was believed, he believed, that he could not come back to the KBO even if he wanted to because uh, he had violated some contract rule. But it turns out Beck Sung-soo makes a call. He finds out that this indefinite suspension is rescinded and that he actually can sign Gil Chung-chu if he is willing to do it. And yeah. he persuades him to sign in a somewhat uh, emotional scene. Yeah. I appreciated that they took great pains to make his story a sympathetic one, right? Like they they did not they clearly did not want to position this as the dreams are indifferent to the reaction that that will arise from this like even if he is unwilling to sort of lay out the entirety of his story and his rationale for having been naturalized in the US and not coming back for his service like we know as the audience that he's an honorable guy, right? And that there were mm -hmm. extenuating circumstances and it was not simply him trying to duck his duty, but being, you know, exhibiting a strong sense of duty in another aspect of his life, right? That he wanted mm -hmm. to be there for his wife and make sure she was okay and did not want her to have to bear the brunt of the blame for his decision making. 
And, you know, as we navigate a league in which we sometimes find out that like players are not the best people, it was mm-hmm. it was nice to be able to feel confident. <laughs> yeah. It's like this is a good guy put in an impossible set of circumstances and yeah. he chose to be supportive of his wife and true to his mm-hmm. family. And that is, you know, I think a, a justifiable reason to to do what he did. So yeah. I was grateful for that. <laughs> yeah. So Bek Sung Soo contrives to have dinner. At Gilchang Ju's house, which at first seemed considerate because he was on the phone with his wife and she's pregnant and she wasn't feeling well. And it sounds like she wanted to maybe have her husband pick some medication up for her or something and, and come home. And so at first it seems like, oh, well, he's just making it so that they don't have to go out to dinner and they can just go back to his house and he can take care of his wife. Although apparently, like we find out in the flashback, like part of it, I guess, is that he kind of like just wanted to snoop around his house. It seems yeah. like, like, well, at his photos like confirmed that yes uh, this is a loving relationship and yeah. and <laughs> this is actually what happened and like maybe not the most considerate thing to just like show up with like your boss and, and a bunch of guests and like say hey can you cook for us pregnant yes. wife who's not feeling well so there was that too but it is very touching because Gil Changju has has you know he still has dreams, but it's been a while since he's really allowed himself yeah. to believe that he is going to pitch at this level again. Let alone that he can return to Korea. So he breaks down in tears. His wife breaks down in yeah. tears because she didn't want him to blame her for costing him his career. So. Bek Sung Soo extends this lifeline to this guy and to this couple and rehabilitates his career, but I guess it's still an open question what his motivations are exactly. Like, is he doing this because he wants to help out this honorable pitcher? Or is he doing it just because he sees an undervalued asset here, yeah. which is what he would say, certainly. And like when he extends the the contract terms and he offers him 500,000, right? And he just like openly lowballs him. He's like, yeah, you know, we're, uh, we're not offering you a ton here because no one else is making you an offer. Like yeah. we have you where we want you. Like yep. they are very, very frank about yeah. their motivations, many of the characters in the show. So like, again, it's, like the race with Wander Franco. They're not doing this just to be generous. Uh, right. They see an opportunity here, but also it's nice to lock up your franchise star, as uh, the Dreams employees would put it. And so I get the sense that Beck Sung Soo, like, he feels good about this, but like, it's all on the inside for now. He is not betraying any emotion himself yeah. with the situation. We kind of have to infer it based on what we know and, and his impassive expressions. Yes, he pl- he plays things very close and <laughs> keeps his cards sort of close to to his chest, but it does seem like Bak Sung Soo it mattered to him the circumstances under which Gil Changju left and it it mm-hmm. matters to him like you said that like this is a real, you know, r- loving relationship and I think extending the lifeline is meaningful, but yeah, I do I, it can be both, right? He can both yep. want to give this guy a second chance and a a way back not only to to baseball but to Korea and also you know be cognizant of the fact that he is securing a, a pitcher who under more normal circumstances would be far too expensive for his club to to mm-hmm. employ so i think it can be both things right mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. So they get back to South Korea. They land at the airport. 
Miles is overshadowed immediately. Tough for the Pelicans. They end up with uh, the foreign player that everyone wanted, and no one cares because immediately everyone is clamoring to hear from Gilchang Ju. And so they schedule a press conference, and I love the press conferences so far because you had the Kang Dugi press conference where he gets up there and he just yells, Dreams! I'm here! Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I think, like, Stephen Matz should have to do that at yeah. his press conference. Just like, Cardinals! I'm here! Yeah. But then at this press conference... The player apparently does not get to talk. Like, he does not say a word at his own press conference. He just sits there at the mic while <laughs> Peck, Peck Sung Soo just uh, speaks for him. So that is interesting. And it's all going fine. And, you know, Peck Sung Soo, for someone who is a bit prickly, not bad with the media. No. Tossing in a, a joke here and there. But then there is the gotcha question at the very end from this hard-driving reporter who says, well, why doesn't he just serve his uh, military service now instead? They don't have an immediate answer for that, and so they beat a strategic retreat. And uh, that will come into play in these later episodes. But they know that they're in for this kind of backlash, and they're prepared for that. And that is why they're getting such a steal here with the signing. So Yeah. And I imagine we will have more opportunity even within this little bit to talk about how certain aspects of the media are portrayed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Skipping ahead a little bit here. So the reporter who asks that tough question, Kim Young-Che, she is the host of a, a popular baseball show. And she is known for sort of editorializing and inserting her own opinion into these things and spinning things in a certain way. And she is stymied in her attempts to interview the GM. And so she does an end around here. She comes up with a clever and manipulative scheme where she interviews Gil Chang Chu and he, you know, doesn't say anything objectionable and he is uh, properly penitent and humble, but then she edits his answers over the objections of her editor. Who says, is this the right thing to do? (laughs) She has this satisfied look on her face like, yeah, because I got a plan, sir. This is going to get me tons of traffic. And the (laughs) team marketing director walks right into this trap because uh, he has a crush on the reporter, basically. He's a huge fan of hers. He does not see the danger coming. Baek Sung Soo sees it coming. He's like, hey, did, uh, did you get final approval over these comments or is she able to just spin this however she wants and he's like oh no if she's a good reporter like i'm sure she'll handle this responsibly and then she chops up his answers in a way that uh, makes people mad at him so yep. this was mismanagement by the marketing department and really just about every person who works for the dreams other than yep. the top couple people not the best at their jobs we will get into the analysis team leader i'm sure in this discussion because I have a lot of notes on his performance here. But this is uh, clearly a story that is going to continue here. It's not just that the press conference was uh, the resolution to all of these issues. This is going to linger. Yep. And by the end of the eighth episode, it it will even endanger Baek Sung-soo's job. Of course, the director of the dreams is just eating up all of this PR backlash to some extent, except when he gets called onto the carpet by his uncle and his boss, who's not happy about the noisy GM that he 
has hired. But yes, this will linger. But Beck Sung Su's like, hey, is this any worse than when we suck and people criticize us? Not really. And once we start playing and we're good and the pitcher is good, people will come around. So he's like, hey, why are you not all used to this by now like don't you have thick skins just from being so bad at baseball for so long like (laughs) you've been the punching bags of the league for years now like you should be used to this i was i was ready to get angry comments on news articles yeah i i uh (laughs) you know i think it is useful to be reminded that it's in the off season you don't have as as the team is sort of aware and as particularly as Bak Sung Soo is aware, like you don't have games to offset whatever yeah. existing narratives you might, as a media member, be interested in, in propagating. So, you know, I think he is right to say that if if they start winning games, that is going to counter a lot of this criticism. But in the void of the offseason, all you have are transactions to react mm-hmm. to. And so you're going to react to them like that is just how these things are going to go. We're in right. We're in the midst of it now, right? So that was mostly episode five, although we bled into later episodes a little there. Episode six revolves around hiring a new sabermetrician. And (laughs) this is right up our alley. Give me an entire series about interviewing potential analysts. This is great. This is (laughs) like, I mean, you've been on the other side of this. Uh, You're hiring writers more so than analysts, but similar skill set. So you and Lisa Young have been in, in very similar situations asking interview questions here. But you are, I suppose, the analysis team leader of Fangraphs in a sense, and you are much better at your job than Yu Gyeong Taik, who Thank is you. The, <laughs> the head of the Dreams Analysis team. And I have to question like what analysis he is providing here. Right. <laughs> I think, I mean, this is a, a couple of years ago, and I know that the KBO is, you know, very into sabermetrics now, but was a, a little slower in adopting it than MLB. So I understand that, like, this is a, a different environment and yeah. this is not a, a, a league where every team is you know hiring double digit numbers of r&d people right they're just sort of dipping their toe into this and so analysis team leader like we think of that as being a, a strictly analytics and sabermetrics right. kind of role in this case historically with the dreams it obviously hasn't been and it's based i guess on standard stats and data and more you know video scouting and like what pitches are you throwing like this guy is either a former player like i assume he is a former player at at some level i don't know if he's a former kbo player but he has some high level playing experience and obviously is extremely biased toward ex-players to the point that he is very much in the camp of like, if you haven't done it, then you are not qualified to offer your opinion here, which is an interesting choice for someone who is the head of the analysis team. And also an interesting choice for someone who has to work with, I mean, forget like Bak Sung Su, like has to work with Lisa Young, right? Like yeah, right. You are you are essentially foreclosing. Not that women don't play baseball, but they aren't playing, you know, KBO baseball, mm-hmm. and so you are essentially foreclosing the possibility of someone who is like Lisa Young having a meaningful role in any organization, right? This is part of the objection that we raised to this line of thinking, you are artificially constricting your analysis, your pool of potential applicants so dramatically. It's not just a matter of, you know, looking at the men who might apply for that position and saying, well, you didn't play. So what what could you possibly
possibly bring here, you know, it is hard to imagine that you would take seriously a resume that includes even high level high school or women's professional baseball experience if this is your perspective, right? Like I just don't think that you're going to view that as equivalent to the kind of experience you need as a player in order to have a, a sort of learned opinion or considered opinion on the sport. So it is, you know, you're really, what is the expression? You're cutting off your nose to spite your face. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, you're really putting yourself at a disadvantage when you aren't willing to consider people who have a great deal to bring to the table just because they haven't played high level baseball, right? Like yeah. come on. None of yeah. none of none of the nerds have done that. That's not true. Some of the nerds have, but mm-hmm. not a lot of them, you know, yeah. unless you're hiring Sam Fold, like what are you doing right. here? Yeah, so she has to push him into an open interview process cuz yes. you get the sense that he's just going to hand this off to one of his friends or a former player when yeah. his uh, former assistant leaves to go run his family's orchard which like sounds really nice <laughs> just yeah. sounds peaceful probably better off running the orchard than helping run the dreams but now we get this open interview process and Lee Se-young says uh, the dreams have been too close-minded about sabermetrics, which is pretty apparent. Yes. And she notes that in MLB, teams are hiring more non-athlete coaches, whereas the analysis team leader, he says you have to hire a former player because players will only listen to former players. And like this is a, a real debate and conflict yeah. that goes on within the walls of major league teams. Yes. But Baek Sung-soo says, hey, you should fix the player's way of thinking instead Instead of like working out a lot so that <laughs> you can impress them with your yeah. physique so that you can look athletic enough. And obviously one solution to this that teams found for a while was uh, what in the MVP machine we called a conduit, you know, a former player who also has the analytics skill set. So you're Brian Bannister and you're Sam Fold and you're Dan Heron and, and that yeah. type of person. And that was a, a good transitional role until now, I think, where you can hire just about anyone to do any job. And I think teams are used to that now. So right. this is uh, anticipating a trend that has certainly happened in the majors. It It is kind of incredible. This is just an aside. But looking at the, the people who've been hired as hitting coaches this offseason, there's so much turnaround in that position in general yeah. because I think there's been a, a change in hitting philosophy and how you instruct hitters. And now you're seeing like Michael Burdar, who is just hired as the Padres hitting coach. He's 27 years old. He never played professionally above rookie ball. He was a coach at Michigan. He was a 36th round pick. So he had a little bit of playing experience, but like a 27-year-old being a hitting coach for a competitive team and Berdar, I interviewed when I was working on the MVP machine. I don't remember if I quoted him or not, but I interviewed him a few years ago. And it's incredible. Like all of the college coaches I talked to during that process are now like hitting coaches or yeah. pitching coaches. Like it's amazing just the rate of adoption. And part of it is that like every MLB team has like three pitching coaches and three hitting right. coaches. Now it's like assistant hitting coach and assistant to the assistant hitting coach. And all that makes sense. Like, you know, if you can do a little player development at the major league level, like that will more than pay for itself. But it's been amazing to see how quickly that has changed and how the backgrounds and and the prerequisites for those positions and the level of experience and playing experience specifically that is expected has dramatically changed. And so we're seeing that change reflected here for the dreams as well. Yeah. So they do the interview process. They they make a call for resumes. They get 10. 
<laughs> which uh, I'm sure you can testify even from hiring for fan graphs, let alone hiring for yeah. the R&D department of a major league team. Sure would be nice to only be competing with nine other applicants. In reality, it's like hundreds. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I like the odds of the applicants here. Yes. I think they do know that like it was sort of a sudden call. Right. And so yeah. perhaps that is accounting for it. But yeah, when we when we do open hiring calls at Fangraphs, like we are we are sifting through hundreds of resumes and my sense from talking to front office folks as I work with them to get their job postings up, you know, they are sometimes dealing with a multiple of that because mm -hmm. people still really want to work in baseball so <laughs> mm -hmm. yep but not for the dreams at least no. not on short notice and so we get this interview montage and lee se young is is asking the right questions and this is a, a lot of fun i think for us to hear and she's yeah. asking you know what sample do you need for certain stats to stabilize in kbo and in mlb and why is it different and as is often the case i think she wants to know how you arrive at the answers more so than what your yes. answers are yes. and meanwhile you have mr analysis team leader who is sitting over there just being like did you play <laughs> and if not, what are you doing in here? Yep. So finally, we get a surprise arrival, and it is the younger brother of our GM, Beck yes. Sung Soo. And it turns out that he has been a secret sabermetrician all along. The call is coming from inside the house here. He is the one who has been writing on this Korean baseball blog, Hooray for Baseball. Great name. I think you should rename Fangraphs yeah. to Hooray for Baseball. And uh, he's been doing this, this study that Lee Se-young was reading about the analysis of heat or temperature on offense. And he's like an internet celebrity yeah. over there going by this uh, pseudonym, Robinson, after Jackie Robinson. So he's like the Tom Tango of the KBO, basically. Yeah. And Baek Sung-soo suspects nothing. He thinks that his brother is studying for the CPA exam, that he's going to take the test to become a CPA. Instead, he shows up at this interview, and Lee Se-young is uh, awed by his arrival. Of course, the analysis team leader has no idea who he is because right. he's never read a blog post in his life. But this leads into the larger backstory of how he became a sabermetrician, how he went from being a player to an analyst, why he uses a wheelchair, etc. And Baek Sung-soo, not so happy to see him at this interview. Right. And we come to learn that he blames himself for his, he was his younger brother, Baek Young-soo, was injured in the course of play, right? Yep. And he was sort of already he was playing hurt and Baxlong Su encouraged him to just run, run full out. And he mm -hmm. did that and he suffered a debilitating injury that has necessitated the use of a wheelchair since. And mm -hmm. I think some of the the first real emotion that we see from yeah. Baxlong Su in the course of the series, like he clearly carries a lot of guilt for this having taken place, that he was sort of indifferent to the severity of his younger brother's existing injuries. He didn't know about some of those existing injuries. It sounds like there was some pretty heavy abuse going on in the course of yeah. his team. And he blames himself for the injury that led to his brother's disability. 
Yeah. And it's very sad. (laughs) It is very sad. Yeah. We talked to Emma Ryan Yamazaki, the director of Koshin, the documentary last year about some of the corporal punishment that has happened in Japanese baseball. And this is happening here also with this team. And he didn't say anything. He just noted that his hips hurt, right? And Beck Sung-soo was like, hey, you got to play through it. He said he doesn't have the brains to like be anything else so that he should just play because he's not going to be as good at anything else as he is at being a baseball player. It sounds like he didn't love playing to begin with. Obviously, he loved it less because he was uh, suffering and being beaten in some misguided effort to improve his performance. But his heart wasn't in it. It seems like he wanted to be a blogger all along, which is uh, very relatable. (laughs) This was me, obviously. Not that I was a superstar high school athlete, but uh, I still just wanted to be a writer more than I wanted to be a player. And that's the case here as well. So he shows up, he nails the interview. He hands over a a ream of posts he's been busy posting and uh, just dumps the stuff on their desk. And he's clearly qualified But his older brother is just not having it, and he is quite cruel at first, and he's drawing attention to his inability to cross the the threshold in the wheelchair without assistance and saying, how are you going to do this, and you're not going to be able to fit in here. And as we get the sense later, he's lashing out and he is riddled with guilt over his own role in his brother's injury. And we get the sense that maybe it's actually painful for him to be working in baseball because it's a reminder of his brother's injury and his failure to prevent it. Ultimately, there's a a hard talk where Lee Se-young just, uh, you know, shows up in Beck Sung-soo's car and says, no, you are not going to get the last line in this conversation. You're not going to leave. I am going to give you some tough love here and explain to you that actually it's very admirable that your brother has gone on to this alternate career and has become so accomplished and has transcended these challenges and you should give him a chance. And ultimately, Beck Sung-soo finally comes around. But Yeah, this is the first time we see real emotion from him. He sheds tears when his brother is hurt. He's been blaming himself all along. His brother is trying to absolve him and say it's not his fault, but, you know, he is uh, trying to support his family and he's trying to make them happy at the expense of his own happiness, kind of like his younger brother did when he was playing and, and doing so to satisfy his brother's and his family's expectations. So... Clearly, there's a lot of love here, and they're not just brothers, but they're roommates, yeah. <laughs> which is nice. And Beck Sung-soo is cooking for him and leaving food out for him when he eventually gets the job and works late at the office. So their relationship improves here. So now they're not just brothers. They're not just roommates. They're also co-workers. And yeah. I think some much-needed sabermetric expertise <laughs> brought to the dreams. Well, and I think reminding his older brother that like he actually found a, a way to baseball being joyful right that in a way when he was playing like it was this slog and he didn't like it and even though you know the the injuries he sustained obviously altered the the course of his life like the course that it has ended up taking has been one that you know he finds joy and happiness in. this isn't just a job like he wants to engage with the sport watching it makes him happy 
It's mm-hmm. not just that it isn't painful, but that it is actually really pleasurable for him to engage with baseball, which we perhaps could have guessed based on what he named his blog. So, like, <laughs> right. you know, I, I think that that it was a really like lovely it was a really lovely episode. It's nice to get that kind of story and ground characters in a show you like in in something that is not just the office and this was this was nice and you know they ended up making the most qualified hire that they could um Mm -hmm. we will get to the the conflict that (laughs) his his hiring um causes elsewhere but like (laughs) they you know they got the right guy they got the guy who's gonna help them put a better team on the field so yeah so another great internet analyst robbed from readers by a team greedily hiring all of the best bloggers <laughs> dreams are like the weird they're not the raise but yeah I, you know i thought about it a little bit in the course yes. of this robinson's readers will miss him but yeah. really enjoyed that whole interview sequence i mean again that's like the most inside baseball of inside baseball scenes like she's, yeah she's, she's asking him like why is war so low for relievers and he's right. like you know you should use win probability added yes like, how is this a tv show that exists this is great. <laughs> sometimes yeah. it's nice when people make art for you, you know? Yeah, it's like specifically for us. Yep. <laughs> and, and then, of course, once he gets the job, the analysis team leader is like, you're not allowed to look at video. <laughs> like, <laughs> just look at stats, and I'm redacting the names of the players because, hey, you're the fancy stat head. You shouldn't need names. You're not allowed to look at the players. Like, you're the stat head. Just look at the stats. So clearly, yeah. like, still some barriers to overcome here. <laughs> yes. So that leads into episode seven and seven and eight. They become about the contract process. Uh, So we have yet more budgetary challenges here with the dreams. Often I think an episode is over and then it's not like there. There are like multiple climaxes in each episode, it seems like. But we find out, I think, at the end of episode six that the corrupt ex-scouting team leader who has been dismissed in disgrace, he's an agent now. He's made a a quick career pivot, and uh, he is getting fed Dream's contract offers from his old scout team colleague, who is just, like, very clearly leaking everything, (laughs) like his loyalties. Not not smooth, that guy. (laughs) No, he's not really even bothering to hide it. So he is, like, this mole inside the organization, still loyal to his old boss. And the agent who reps Lim dong Yu, evidently, but he's on another team now. He's with the Vikings, but he has also collected a bunch of clients who just so happen to be players for the Dreams. And he is not motivated solely by his desire to get them the best contracts. He is out for revenge. He wants to make Bik Sung-soo pay for the way that he got rid of him and his job of it is uh, a little easier or at least Beck Sung Su's job is harder because the director of the team is imposing a 30% pay cut from yeah. the already meager payroll and Beck Sung Su tries to push back he acts as if it's a negotiation he says how about 10% how about 15% no it is not a negotiation it's 30% and like it or leave and he doesn't like it he doesn't leave he decides to work within the constraints of this system so we know that he is against this pay cut and he is in fact angered by this pay cut but he can't really divulge that at least at first to his subordinates and to the players themselves 
he has to be the bad guy here and carry out these pay cuts and he does his job well as usual he does it at least seemingly without a lot of sentimentality and a lot of attention to the bottom line and so not the easiest to root for in this episode because the whole episode is like can we get these guys to accept way less than they're worth so not the most sympathetic storyline here i didn't know like we got the return of the word humanist yes you know humanists at the bargaining table and and you're you're sympathetic to the and we've see we see this phenomenon in major league baseball and we've talked about it a lot on the show you know there are there are realities of ownership budgets that teams have to operate within, and those realities might diverge from what certain front office personnel would like to do if they were able to just make their own choices sort of irrespective of those budgets. Mm-hmm. And some of those folks get hired because they're really good at operating within those confines. So yeah. I don't, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to blame front offices for everything related to budgets, but I don't want to absolve them of everything either because, mm-hmm. you know, there's a reason you get hired when you're going to a team that wants to enact pay cuts. It's because you're good at bobbing and weaving within those. Right. And there were definitely moments in these two episodes where, you are sympathetic to the plight that they find themselves in, and I think that you're especially sympathetic to what the team is is having to go up against when when you have this particular agent involved who is not really he is interested in doing what's right for his clients and so far as like they are being lowballed. <laughs> yeah, they they need an agent. Right. <laughs> Maybe and not the, this one, but And the fact that these contracts I don't this is an area where I don't know sort of how true to life it really is. Like right. it seems very strange that the player would just negotiate for themselves absent mm-hmm. an agent, even for a guy who isn't a a free agent, right? Like these are these are players who have not yet been in the league long enough to be free agents. I think we are we are given to understand that those negotiations might proceed differently, but it's really weird that like they were just going in with a number, right? And yeah. have to sort of do stuff for themselves. So this is me betraying my ignorance of sort of the inner workings of KBO um, contract negotiations. Right. I don't know if that's how things actually proceed. So on the one hand, it's like they're being lowballed, but also he isn't really interested at the end of the day in what is best for them he wants to you know stick it to the dreams like that Mm -hmm. is his goal so yeah yeah the part of this that i imagine is not true to life is that he basically tosses out everything that happened before the last season yeah it doesn't matter what your seniority is how old you are what you've been paid previously his solution to this massive pay cut is that he is just going to pay everyone based on how they performed in the most recent season. So if you miss some time with an injury, you're out of luck. You're going to be paid what you were worth that year, basically. It's basically, I mean, it's not that far from like MLB's recent proposal with the, the war basis and everything. It's just like, hey, what was your performance last year? And someone says, one of the player points out, I, I think it's the, the catcher, the holdout, yeah. who says like, well, if your salary is based on a single season, like it should be based on the expectation for the future season right. more so than what you just did. But he says, nope, we're going with this one-year system. Players with families don't get salary boosts anymore like no other considerations except what you did on the field and most players are understandably upset by this and some of them are in for huge pay cuts and i 
like the fact that they presented this from multiple player perspectives. Yeah. So you get Zhang Jin Wu, who is the player who is at the tail end of his career, and he's been accomplished in the past. He was a 19-game winner, but he had surgery. He's lost a lot of stuff, and he's just kind of hanging around now as a veteran mentor type. And so you see a little bit of his family and his wife's expectations for what he's going to make. And it turns out that even though they are expecting a cut, it's a huge cut. And yeah, dramatically so... <laughs> more than what they were anticipating. Yeah. And so he weighs whether he should give up playing and go into the restaurant business. And then you also get a look at the catcher, who is more, I guess, in the prime of his career. He's a veteran. And then you get the the young up-and-coming rookies who are just desperate for anything. They just want any kind of raise. They'll take whatever you give them. And really, it's pretty clear. And Bek Sung-soo makes it clear. And even Lee Se-young, who is normally more, I guess, on the player's side, like she clearly feels bad about this. Yeah. but. She is just laying it all out there. It's like they're both like, hey, you're not a free agent for a long time. Like you're under team control. Like you have no recourse here. You can either accept what we offer you or not play. Like there's just not a lot of leeway. And yeah, their hands are tied and they are just sort of relaying this message. It's an interesting conversation where – Bik Sung Soo, you know, she's like, hey, it's not our fault. We're not the bad guys, right? Because this is an ownership mandate. And then Bik Sung Soo is like, well, that is maybe what the director of the team is saying, that this is a mandate from his uncle, the owner of the parent company, Jaesung. And so like each rung of the ladder, you can tell yourself, oh, I'm just following orders here. But ultimately, you are kind of being the bad guy. And in the director of the team's case, like, <laughs> he is uh, not solely following orders. I mean, clearly he's under a lot of pressure at work and he's kind of being bullied by his cousin, yeah. the, the owner of the parent company's son, and there's a rivalry there. And he's sort of having to justify his presence and value to the company because I, I guess his dad was uh, not quite as productive and we'll learn more about that. But I think, you know, clearly he has it out for Beck Sung Soo and there's a part of him maybe that likes baseball and, and maybe that will be fleshed out a little later. But really, he just wants power here. He is trying to shut down the team and he is doing whatever he can to make that happen. So this 30% pay cut is punitive to some extent. I mean, he is punishing Bek Sung Soo for standing up to him and he is trying to make it even harder for him to do his job so that this team is more likely to be disbanded. Which is interesting because it's like on the one hand, that is consistent with his ultimate goal, which is to disband the team. But it is strange that you hire the guy who takes a team to a championship and then gets it disbanded (laughs) and then put him in a position where they are going to be even worse than they were the year before. It's like, which part of the resume ended up being important to you here? We were sort of given to understand in the beginning that it was both, but there seems to have been a bit of a pivot there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and at first they're talking about just cutting players to satisfy this payroll reduction. And again, it's not totally clear whether this is Bik Sung Soo being a, a secret humanist. Is yeah. he a softie on the inside? Or is it just that he sees these players as assets and it, it's better not to cut them because they will be more valuable to the team in the long run? But they have this meeting where he's like, okay, can we cut this guy? Can we cut that guy? And yeah. someone has an objection about everyone. I love how the manager 
just pieces like he just (laughs) leaves the meeting where the cuts are being decided and the manager seems to have more of a backbone now because there's that early scene in episode five where the bench coach and the pitching coach are squabbling again and he's like hey just figure it out like you guys have your roles like i'm the manager i have some job security now but in this meeting about cutting players he's like hey i have to hit these guys fungos like i can't decide who to cut it's like isn't that part of your job though to like (laughs) decide like which player to keep and let go like I get that it's hard but it seems like it should be probably part of your job yeah it's like um I think that you want to be in on this conversation (laughs) because if you aren't you might end up being really unhappy with the results yeah you would think so Anyway, the GM here is being sabotaged not just by his boss, but also by the scouting assistant who is uh, collaborating with the agent, the former scout team leader behind his back. And the agent knows what Dreams was planning to offer all of these teams. So that's uh, just another problem here. And, you know, he is open about like, hey, we should uh, convince these players to take what we're offering them. Like someone points out that Zhang Jinwu, I think, was more successful as a reliever and maybe he would have potential there and yeah so he was like why should we acknowledge his value when he himself does not know it <laughs> so it's like he doesn't know what he's worth so uh we shouldn't tell him because we want to get him on the cheap here so it's definitely like cutthroat negotiations yeah. or not even negotiations because there's just not a lot of bargaining that goes on here and Ultimately, the agent, he uh, is thwarted in his efforts to get revenge on the team because his players, they're used to being lowballed. They want contracts. They want to sign. And so the Dreams front office comes up with this scheme to distract him, essentially, and uh, stage a diversion while they go and negotiate with his players individually. They sign deals behind the agent's back, and then he is left kind of empty-handed except for his one last client, Kwok Hun Young, who is known as Kind Young because yeah. uh, he will just always take whatever you yeah. offer him. Yeah, it is sad. And uh, at first, like it, it seems like these hardball tactics work out for him. Like it's overdue that he should have an agent yeah. because he does get offered more money. But then he gets guilted into signing for less than he could have signed because yeah. uh, they're like, hey, we'll give you more, but it's going to come out of other players' salaries. Yeah. And he is kind young, and he's like, no, I will take less. So really, they just outmaneuver everyone, outnegotiate everyone. Even the catcher, who is the, the hardest to come around and the most resistant, he ultimately is cowed because they're just like, hey, you know, what are you going to do? Are you right. going to retire? He's like, hey, you need a catcher. And they're like, hey, we suck. So we can just go get any catcher. It's right. kind of like the Branch Ricky, like we can finish last without you line, right. essentially. And so there are multiple confrontations. He pours liquor on Baek Su's pants yeah. at this like gentleman's club type yeah. place where he arranges a meeting. And Lee Se-young comes to his defense and she's yeah. angry. She throws a glass at the wall and shatters and yells at him and then yells at him at a subsequent meeting. So yeah. she is like very much up to the task of yeah. uh, of being the bad cop when she has to be. Yeah, she she's not t- taking any of his nonsense. Do all catchers actually have hemorrhoids? I don't know if they all do. I hope not for yeah. their sake. Well, that was suggested here. And I was like, oh, man, be it, why is anyone a catcher? Sure. Yeah. Sitting right. there with hemorrhoids. It seems yes. bad. 
Yeah, it's an interesting strategy that he invites them into like his rehab sessions. And yeah. he's like, do you see? Like, I am a shell of myself physically. Like, yeah. I had to do all this treatment just to get on the field. I got hemorrhoids. I got knee treatments. It's it's an interesting negotiating strategy because it's like his problem is that he can't stay healthy. Right. And he's trying to show them, yeah, but I'm, I'm working hard and catchers are just subject to all of these injuries and everything. But also he's just like confirming what they think, which is that they can't really count on him to be healthy and also Baek Sung Su like stares at his hemorrhoids for an uncomfortably long time yeah it's it's you know <laughs> I, I think any amount of time staring at another person's hemorrhoids yeah. is probably an uncomfortably long time but mm-hmm. yeah and then we get another display of emotion from Baek Sung Su who comes up to the mole who he knows has been leaking and dramatically knocks his coffee over. So this is uh, some leaking going on for the leaker here, and his keyboard is potentially ruined, but he's uh, basically saying, I know what you're doing. Don't do it again. Yeah. And uh, so he shows some anger, and it's clear also that he is angry about being forced to impose this pay cut, and he is not happy about that either. And so he comes up with a counter strategy. Yeah. This is in episode eight now where to get revenge on the director who is cutting payroll, he then calls up a reporter, and I guess reporters are just willing to print pretty much whatever you ask them to print here in this world. But he says, hey, you want to feel good story? My story is that I'm giving up my salary because uh, clearly the dreams are in trouble and they're all kind of financial issues here. And really, he just wants to make Jason look bad. And they suffer a, a 9% decrease in their stock price. And yeah. the director comes in. He's like, hey, well, you gave me that 30% pay cut. Real shame that you had to do that and get your 9% reduction. So he is not trying to hide his motivations here either. He is like, hey, you you mess with the bull, you get the horns here. Yeah, and it, it ends up in the immediate term sort of working out for him where they reverse the cuts, um, at least to some extent, and some of the, the younger players who's mm-hmm. who had been lowballed end up getting to go through another round of, of contract signings where they are making more than they were, and they're all yep. very happy about it. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of it was kind of nice that like Lisa Young got to deliver good news after an episode yeah. <laughs> or two episodes where she was mostly disappointing players who were hoping right. to you know <laughs> if if not take any cuts at least not take cuts as drastic as the ones that they were in for. So that was kind of a nice moment where she got to to let everyone know like no you get to you know you get to pay for new equipment and yeah. and make more and they were all so happy so it was good that part was yeah. nice I don't know if that's a true to life thing either that these players have to play pay for their own equipment as yeah I was to, wondering that you know, like in the states like even minor league players will usually get little endorsement deals where companies right. will just provide equipment for them and obviously at the major league level you're getting most of that equipment all of that equipment provided for you so I don't know if that is true in KBO or not these are yeah. the questions that it'd be nice to ask a KBO expert about yes. and maybe we will but yeah. yeah so she's able to just uh, offer a pittance a, a slight raise over the league minimum for yeah. some of these players so that's nice I suppose and all the contract stuff is settled now and the jason chairman the big boss here he 
comes out and says, I've made it this far because I don't view people as persons. Yeah. <laughs> Just again, like being very open about <laughs> this is like saying the quiet part out loud. This is like your inner monologue. I guess he is just in a position where he doesn't have to dress it up like he yep. can say whatever he wants to because he's the big shot businessman. So that's the attitude that the director of the dreams is emulating or, or being pressured to adopt here. And in the end, Jung Jin Woo decides he's not done yet. He wants to play again. He likes helping the younger players figure yeah. out how to throw Ephus pitches. Yeah. So that's nice. And, uh, you know, it's tough to root for the dreams at various points here yeah. when it's like in cost cutting mode. But you also yeah. understand the pressure that they are under. And you can't really root for the corrupt agent either. And you can't right. really root for the chairman of the dreams either. So there's a lot of that to go around. Like even the director the sinister listening to master of puppets in the car <laughs> as he is concocting his scheme yeah. to uh, leak the story about nepotism with Beck young Su, the younger brother of Beck sung Su. So at the end of episode eight, as we leave it, there is the uproar about Gil Chang Ju and his comments and his uh, out of context comments in the interview. And yeah. then he has also leaked the story that the GM hired his brother to be an analyst, even though the GM initially did not want anything to do with his brother as an analyst. And so he is under fire now. It's clear that the director really just wants him gone because he is rude and he is challenging his authority and yeah. endangering his scheme to disband the team. But this is the, the public story. So as we leave it. Beck Sung Su's job is already in danger here. He's barely been on the job for, I don't know, weeks or, or months at this point, but he's on thin ice. Well, and it's interesting because, like, on the one hand, you can see how an, a nepotism storyline is, like, easy to sell because it's his younger brother. And he's like, mm -hmm. you participated in the interview, but he didn't know that his brother was coming in, and he really was the best candidate that they had yep. and, you know, <laughs> managed to escape the rest of his front office thinking that he was, like, being kind of a dick to a guy mm -hmm. in a wheelchair <laughs> because yeah. when he was doing that in front of Lisa Young, like she didn't know yet know that it was his younger brother right. and that this was an expression of like yeah. deep emotional pain. You can't right? ask and, that in an interview. Yeah, I think. Like, definitely yeah. cannot. It's like, um, <laughs> I think that what you should do is make your office accessible to yes, everyone. Yes, some ramps in here. But yeah, also. like rather, <laughs> rather than holding his wheelchair against him, what if you retrofit your office so that it can actually be accessible to your employees mm -hmm. that seems like a much more prudent course of action yep. but yeah I, you can see how this is going to potentially play and it it does seem as if other members of the organization who were previously ignorant to the relationship between these two guys are you know upset that that his younger brother was hired um, and assume that the the reason there is that he you know he was his brother rather than him being the best candidate which is too bad because you know don't they read Hooray Baseball? <laughs> Hooray, Hooray for Baseball. baseball. Yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> come on. This, this guy is a celebrity. The mm -hmm. the Tom Tango, the, Je the Jeff Sullivan yep. of mm -hmm. Korea. What do you, you want to hire that guy? That yeah. guy's great. <laughs> Forgot to mention another little bit of manipulation, which is that Beck Sung-soo is using 
the other teams using the Pelicans yes. and the Vikings to undercut the players' leverage in these negotiations because he is uh, spreading rumors that he is going to be trading for their replacements at those positions. And he never seriously intends to, I guess. No. And so he has angered his uh, rival GMs here who feel like they have been used because they have been used. But that's like the other contingency plan here just to undercut the agent's efforts. So he's got many schemes running yes. at the same same time here and uh there's just there's so much going on here there's also like the deciding which players to reserve on on the 40 man and like the rule five draft kind of equivalent is coming yes. up so i i don't really believe in the dream's ability to handle any of these things very well but hopefully now that they have a, a real sabermetrician they got robinson in the house they can right. probably come up with some good finds in the rule five draft Yes, and the team leader seems to be begrudgingly sort of yes. acknowledging the expertise that that he is bringing to the team, right? He is asked if like he has sort of sufficient resources to do what he needs to and he says that he does with his existing staff. So, mm -hmm. it seems as if his sort of chops are being recognized even as if even as they are being called into question in a, in a sort of more public way mm -hmm. with the accusation that he's just a nepotism hire. And yeah, Bak Sung-soo uses the wormy scout team members leaking to his advantage, right? Yes. When he sort of passes on to the team that the positions they are targeting are all of the positions of these players and he whips his phone out in the meeting. <laughs> right. Not even subtle about it. Yeah. yeah, to pass that on. So, you know, he is he is aware of the scheming and sort of uses it to his benefit here but you know we can we can root for winning days and a and mm -hmm. a bigger budget so yep. these guys are paid what they're worth yeah and little shout out just to lee say young's mom who's the best I love yeah her. like she's removed from the dreams like there's not necessarily a reason for her to be in the show but i'm glad she's in the show yeah. because everything she says is funny and for anyone who works in the baseball industry like a parent criticizing your salary is probably pretty relatable <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so i like the attitude there yeah i think she also serves as sort of a a good neutral arbiter for for Lisa Young to sort of bounce the moves of the team yeah. across, like how does this read to you? Because yeah. um, she, you know, they're sitting on the couch watching this interview, and I think this is where Lisa Young starts to to realize, like, uh oh, we're in we're in real trouble here based on how this is playing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, so we'll pick it up again with episodes nine through twelve, maybe late next week. We'll see yeah. how things go. And uh, I do want to talk about like the, the hints of romance or the lack of romance, but we can get into that next time. It certainly has not been a big part of the first eight episodes here. Yeah. But uh, that's all for today, I suppose. We did have uh, Patreon supporter Michael noted in light of our recent Hall of Fame discussion that Lim Dong-gyu would be an interesting case when Lim Dong-gyu oh, is on yeah. the Hall of Fame ballot. It's kind of like what you were saying, like the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence when it comes to bad behavior like no one knows seemingly that Lim dong is like hiring thugs to beat people up and, right like throwing his gold glove awards through windshields like people seem to think he's a, a nice guy I guess at least one reporter knows that he's paying reporters off but he is unlikely to divulge that fact right because he is the recipient of it so everyone thinks Lim dong great guy maybe not very clutch but uh, seems to be nice guy in the community and everything and then we find out 
out that he is like hiring people to kneecap you essentially yeah. so you just never know i would probably cast a vote for lim dong Yu, and then it would come to light later that actually he's a very bad dude and i feel yeah. bad about that yeah <laughs> all right so we will end there we have worked hard as everyone says in dreams, that's one of the the two Korean expressions that my wife and I have kind of integrated into our dialogue is uh, we've worked hard or you've worked hard, which is basically like good job. And yeah. then fighting, which is fighting. something that the character fighting, which is like good luck or yeah. let's go, you know, something along those lines. So yeah. I've uh, incorporated those those expressions into our domestic conversations at times. So hope you're all enjoying dreams as much as we are. And we will be back next week. Yeah. And have a good Thanksgiving, everyone. That'll do it for today and for this week. Thanks as always for listening. And thanks to those of you who have supported us on Patreon where you can help us keep the podcast going and help keep the podcast ad-free and get yourself access to some perks by pledging some small monthly or perhaps not as small annual amount. You can also get access to our Discord group for Patreon supporters where there is a dedicated Stove League discussion channel and you can get access to our off-topic AMA bonus episodes for Patreon supporters, the first of which we plan to publish next week before the end of the month but just under the wire. The following five listeners have already signed up. Mohammed Khan, Meherab Amaria, Elizabeth Baldwin, John Maslon, and Jeffrey Hochstein. Thanks to all of you. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fancrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at EWPod. There's an Effectively Wild subreddit where you can discuss the show. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. And whether you enjoy Thanksgiving or dread Thanksgiving or don't even celebrate Thanksgiving, we hope you have a wonderful rest of the week and weekend. Enjoy the lull before the potential lockout. And we will be back to talk to you early or mid next week. Others who wonder, others who wonder.